Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Blood Associate Editor Dr. Margaret Goodell, along with colleagues Dr. Grant Chellen and Dr. David Steensma, discuss the exploding field of clonal hematopoiesis. I'm Margaret Goodell, and I'm a professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, many people know me as Peggy. I'm going to talk to you about the review series that we're doing in blood about clonal hematopoiesis. As many of you know, clonal hematopoiesis has really exploded over the past four or five years. There was evidence that the bone marrow had major changes in the clonality for many decades, but it really had not been understood in any quantitative sense. And then several years ago, a number of papers came out at the same time showing that in fact this clonal hematopoiesis was very prevalent. And over the past five years or so, a number of groups have explored that in much more detail and the field has exploded. I thought this would be a very interesting time to bring together some of those different studies and display how people are thinking about it in different contexts. There are five reviews in this series, and today I brought together a couple of the other authors in the series to discuss what we are going to be writing about. I'd like to introduce one of my colleagues, Grant Challen, who is a professor at Washington University. Grant and I have written a review on the mechanisms of clonal hematopoiesis. I would also like to introduce you to Dr. David Steensma, who is at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, who is representing the opposite end of the spectrum of clonal hematopoiesis in terms of the clinical implications of it. Hi, my name is Grant Challen, Associate Professor at Washington University in St. Louis. So Peggy's invited me to write a review, which I'm happy to participate in, about the mechanisms of clonal dominance in clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. What we are hoping for the reader to get out of this review is understanding how genetic mutations in chip genes influence the behavior of individual hematopoietic stem cells, which allows them to outcompete normal stem cells over time and establish a dominant foothold in the bone marrow. And then we're coupling that with how age-associated changes in cell extrinsic factors in the bone marrow microenvironment may provide selective pressures that favor the growth of clones with certain mutations over time, which allows them to tolerate stress better than normal stem cells. And again, another mechanism of how they can outcompete normal stem cells over time and establish clonal dominance. I'm David Steensma from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. I'm fascinated by the science of clonal hematopoiesis. It's one of the most interesting observations in hematology and I think actually in the biology of aging in the last 10 years. The fact that clonal hematopoiesis is so common as people age and has such important clinical implications. Although I'm fascinated by the science, I see patients and I do clinical research. And so my contribution to the series was in collaboration with a terrific colleague from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Kelly Bolton, Dr. Kelly Bolton. And we each have set up at our respective institutions clinics to look after patients with uh, clonal hematopoiesis and with somatic mutations detected in different contexts. This is a growing clinical problem. Patients are referred to us by various other caregivers. And we've each had to wrestle with how to set up such a clinic, what 
the downstream implications are, where to refer patients after they've seen us, how to counsel these patients, and my contribution to the series was to discuss that. Everybody understands the most recurrently mutated genes that show up in individuals with CHIP. What we are really trying to help the reader understand is why these mutations are so prevalent. What makes these mutations show up in stem cells much more frequently than any other genes? How do they influence the behavior of that stem cell and allow it to grow better than its neighbors? So we're trying to ascribe some functionality to these mutations rather than just a list of genes over time. Many institutions are setting up clinics for patients with clonal hematopoiesis, with CHIP, with ARCH, and in our review we tried to give some guidance for folks as they consider doing that based on some of our own experiences setting up such uh, clinics in the last two years. In addition, there are a lot of special considerations with respect to just what to tell the patient and individual hematologists who may not have a dedicated clinic for these patients still are going to see these patients and you know need to have some context for what to tell them and you know what kinds of things to consider with respect to following these patients over time and so we've tried to give some guidance on that and finally this is very context dependent but insurance in how to get sequencing paid for and how to get these types of consultations reimbursed. We give a bit of advice about that as well based on, again, some of our own hard-earned experience in this realm. One of the questions that seems to be a theme that will run through many of these reviews, I think, is whether there are certain conditions that favor clonal hematopoiesis or disfavor clonal hematopoiesis. So from a scientific perspective, both Grant Challen and I are interested in the idea that many cells have these mutations already, both in mice and humans, but they only appear in certain contexts. From a pure science perspective, what is that? Is it exposure to smoking or is it exposure to certain kinds of drugs or a high fat diet? We don't know. Those are some of the questions that we are raising in our review, but this then feeds into the more clinical side of things because when individuals come into these CHIP clinics, we don't know why they have CHIP and we don't really know right now what can be done about that. So these are some of the themes that inspired me to put together this review series and bring together different perspectives on it. I would say that this whole field is really in its infancy and we don't really understand fully the long-term implications. So I guess that's where the basic science comes in, trying to understand some of these things from that side of it, and then collecting enough data on the individuals who have CHIP to better understand it so that we can know what to tell people in the long-term future. Maybe David has comments on that. When I see a new patient with somatic mutation with clonal hematopoiesis, I'm really talking to them about two things in addition to just some basics about the biology of what their situation is. The first is their risk of progressing to a hematologic neoplasm. And for some patients that risk is very high, for others it's quite low. And we discuss how we're going to monitor them over time for that. Secondly, we know that clonal hematopoiesis, that CHIP, is a risk factor for cardiovascular events. And so we not only counsel them about that risk and about what they may be able to do to reduce that risk, although we don't know for sure that there's anything they can do to reverse that risk, but it at least makes sense for the patients to try to control their 
cholesterol levels and their blood pressure and quit smoking if they're a smoker, tall order. And we've been fortunate to have some cardiology colleagues who are quite keen in understanding clonal hematopoiesis and its role in cardiac events who are willing to see these patients for us. In the future, I hope that we'll be able to tell patients things that they can do to modify those risks. You know, I think the cardiovascular risks are probably going to be the first that are amenable to modification. It seemed likely that anti-inflammatory approaches of different types will be able to reduce the likelihood of a heart attack or a stroke. However, eliminating the clone is going to be, I think, much more difficult. And this is where work like what Grant is doing with respect to how the clones gain an advantage, what makes them get a foothold, will hopefully help us have some insights into you know, how we can get rid of that competitive advantage and restore normal, healthy polyclonal hematopoiesis because that's going to be a very difficult bar. We can't do that with any of the existing therapies now. Where I think the field of clonal hematopoiesis is going, I think the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do really boils down to cancer prevention. I think what we would like to do as David sees people who come into the clinic, as sequencing technology improves, even in healthy individuals, it's going to be routine to take a blood sample, sequence the top 40 chip genes and see who is at risk. Then we follow these people and try to understand who is more at risk for disease progression than others. That's one thing that we need to try and figure out. The other major thing is asking, well, if we can't understand who is at risk, could we actually do anything about it? What can we do knowing that this person has a specific mutation that would reduce their chance of eventually going on to develop leukemia? And that's where it comes back to the basic biology. We need to understand how these mutations change the behavior of the stem cells. And we need to find ways to intervene to reverse that and allow the normal stem cells a chance to catch up and reconstitute the blood and bone marrow. It's all a statistics game. You're reducing the probability that that individual will go on to develop a cardiovascular or hematopoietic malignancy. Along those lines, I wanted to mention one of the other reviews that is part of this series. Dr. Sid Jaswal from Stanford is writing a review on the non-hematologic consequences of CHIP. It has been well established that there is a high correlation between CHIP and cardiovascular disease. The mechanisms are being explored, but incompletely understood at this time. Dr. Jaswal's review covers these correlations and some of the mechanisms that are thought to be behind this, which will give some food for thought to future interventions. At Blood, we try to put together a number of these review series every year, and so the editors-in-chief always ask the associate editors to come up with some ideas. This area of CHIP has been one of my fascinations for the past several years. It's a bit of a challenge because it is a very young field, and I wanted to have five reviews that were distinct in their topics, also with very outstanding writers that would bring together important and impactful perspectives that we can all think about. I will say also that I think a great review will cover the history of the field as it stands at the moment, but also really proposes questions for the future. That's what I wanted to focus on. It's always an honor to be asked to write for blood. People read blood. It's the most important publication of the society with respect to its enduring meaning. And so I immediately accepted, and I reached out to Dr. Bolton also because I didn't want the article to be just a Dana-Farber perspective, just a Boston perspective. And at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they 
actually have a different sequencing approach, a different platform, and so their challenges with respect to setting up their clinic were a little bit different from ours in Boston. So what I mean by that is that when they see a patient in their institution with any type of tumor, whether it's a breast cancer or lung cancer, they do parallel sequencing where they sequence that tumor and then they sequence the blood as a control. However, 25% of the time, they find a mutation in the blood that's not in the tumor, and almost 5% of the time, that's a chip mutation. This has quite significant implications because those patients are at considerably increased risk of developing a myeloid malignancy down the road. It may even become part of the routine discussion when considering chemotherapy or radiation therapy for a patient with a solid tumor to look for these mutations and say, what is your risk of developing therapy-related MDS or AML? At our institution at Dana-Farber, we don't do that. So we pick up patients in other ways. You know, we have one panel for all hematologic malignancies. So many patients who are undergoing staging for lymphoma or myeloma incidentally are found to have a mutation like DNMT3A that is not in the myeloma or JAK2 or something, and they needed counseling. And increasingly, our colleagues with solid tumor-focused practice are doing circulating tumor DNA, cell-free DNA, and they're picking up mutations that way as well. So it was something I was excited to share with the community the hematology community, some of our experiences. It's very early days with respect to this clinic. It's something we've done in partnership actually with our myeloma colleagues, with Dr. Irene Gobriol, who has a special interest in the progression from monoclonal myopathy of undetermined significance to moldering myeloma to overt myeloma. Parallel process in some ways to what occurs with CHIP to MDFs to AML. And so we've been able to, to partner with her and that's been very exciting. And I just wanted to share that experience. So when Dr. Goodell reached out, it took me about 30 seconds to decide to agree. Like David said, it's an honor to be considered to write one of these reviews for blood. The first thing I wanted to consider was I didn't want my own biased perspective to influence the reader, so I reached out to make sure that Peggy would help me be a co-author on this article. And then because this is such a rapidly evolving field, you really have to dive into the literature that's been published in the last six to 12 months to catch up with everything that's gone on in clonal hematopoiesis. And you're now synthesizing that for the reader to try and convey what you think are the most important themes that we know so far and the major questions for the future. So we want to be very clear in what we write and try and while conveying our opinion, also making it an unbiased view of the field as we currently see it. I'll just add to that, Grant was a trainee in my lab a number of years ago. He's had his own very successful lab at WashU for a number of years. So for me, it was a great honor that he would accept to do this review with me. So we're co-authors and it's a fun opportunity to write together, to talk about what's been happening in the field. We've already met at this ASH meeting. We've had several phone calls. We've passed things back and forth. Since we have worked separately now for many years, our own thoughts have evolved and grown in different directions, but coming together again to write this has been a fun process for both of us. Along the lines of the therapy-related clonal hematopoiesis that you mentioned, we have commissioned an entire review as part of this series. That is from Dr. Dan Link, who's at WashU as well. Dr. Link has been interested for years in the concept that there may be clones in the bone marrow that under certain circumstances are given an opportunity for positive selection, particularly in the context of chemotherapy for different kinds of diseases. So he was really a pioneer on this topic, recognizing this was important in selecting for P53 associated mutations that show up in the blood and the bone marrow. 
and since then he's published a number of other papers in this area. So I think this will make a nice complement to the studies that Dr. Steensma mentioned. We are also including a review from Dr. Coleman Lindsley at the Dana-Farber and his colleague Akiko Shimamura at the Boston Children's Hospital. This review will cover genetic predisposition syndromes and how in many of these patients they acquire clonal hematopoiesis at a much earlier age and their flavor of clonal hematopoiesis seems to be quite distinct from that that people get at older ages. So this will complement the more aging-associated clonal hematopoiesis reviews that will be the bulk of what will be included. For me, as a collection, I wanted to serve the broad blood community. It's obviously a very large community and very diverse with many practicing hematologists and basic scientists and everybody in between that practice in and out of academic medical centers. I felt that many in the field would be interested in different questions relating to clonal hematopoiesis, some pertaining to patients and some pertaining to how to address the scientific questions in the long term. I'm hoping that there will be something for everybody in the overall group of reviews. I've written before on clonal hematopoiesis and its clinical complications in a number of different contexts, but this was the first opportunity to write about how we're actually seeing these patients, how we built our clinic, some of the very practical considerations with respect to counseling these patients and the logistics, how they end up in our clinic. Our review has five different case scenarios of actual patients who ended up in our clinics for one reason or another. And so that was a unique take or a unique focus of this review. Uh, there are a lot of different reviews of clonal hematopoiesis out there because it's such a hot topic and it's moving so quickly. But I think what's special about this series is, you know, the focus on certain aspects of it that are complementary. And that was something that I was excited to participate in. I want to thank all of my authors for helping to put together this review series. All of the authors are very busy people doing science and clinical practice, and to take time out, a lot of time out, to put together these reviews is really substantial. I think they're going to be a fabulous collection. So I really want to thank all of my authors for participating. If you're interested in reading this review series, you can find it at bloodjournal.org, and I want to thank all of you for listening. Thank you for listening to the review series on clonal hematopoiesis. To read the articles, visit www.bloodjournal.org. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.